Good morning, church. I am uh, honored and humbled to bring this sermon to you this morning. It's a great labor and joy to be one of your pastors. And I've been so encouraged by this text and by so many of you. So many of you have told me you've been praying for me, and that is appreciated. We know that the Lord answers those prayers, as we'll get to in today's text. Today we're going to be finishing the book of 1 John. We've been going through 1 John for a bit now. So please open your Bible to 1 John chapter 5. Uh, That is page 1023 in a pew Bible. And let's stand together as we read this text. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confidence that we can have that what you say is true, that you are true. I pray that we would receive your word as the truth this morning, remembering that you have not just spoken, but you are speaking when we read your word. I pray that you would give me clarity of speech. I pray that what you want to say to us today would be heard and nothing else. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may be reading, many of you probably from the ESV uh, version, which has the heading that you may know uh, over this section of scripture. And this is a really wonderful summary of the encouragement that John was sharing with the first century church. In a time when people were leaving the church and questioning the authenticity of the faith, the Lord had this word for his bride. And this living word is just as applicable to us today. Just as in the first century, many of us in the church find ourselves wondering if we actually have the truth. And that causes us to hedge our bets with idolatry and half-hearted prayer. So John wrote to remind believers of the truth about Jesus Christ and so refute any other claims of new or secret knowledge. He reassured them that Jesus was the only truth, the true one, and they should not waver in their faith, their prayer, or their worship. So today my aim is the same as John. My aim is to encourage you, my brothers and sisters at Bull Street, to stand firm in what you know to be true. This assurance in the truth of the gospel gives confidence in our prayer, motivates our worship. So church, stand firm in the faith, pray with confidence, worship the one true God. These are going to be my points today, and we're going to start by looking at verse 13. 
Point number one, stand firm in the faith. Let's read verse 13 again. This is gonna, you're going to have to read a lot today. Just be prepared for that. I've got little sticky tabs for where I'm going to be turning, but you're going to have to just get there quickly. Uh, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, right here at the end of the book, we're getting the purpose. And John has done this before. If you go back to the Gospel of John, same author, uh, we have a similar situation happening at the end of the book. For those of you who were in Adult One a couple of years ago, we went through the Gospel of John, and we repeated this, I think, every week. That verse in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other things, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is, John is doing this again. Right at the end of the book, he's coming in with his purpose. And remember also, though, that there was a purpose that was given us at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 4. It says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Some of your versions say your joy may be complete. So we've got joy and assurance, both mentioned as purposes of this book, one at the beginning, one at the close. And I want us to see that those two are inextricably linked. Joy and assurance. In order for our joy to be full, we need to know. We need to know something. So this phrase that you may know is here. And know is used so many times in this passage, feeling like a direct attack on the heresies that are being presented at that time and in our time also. Heresies about there being secret knowledge, needing to read between the lines of scripture and history to understand what's really going on. But this word know in the original language means exactly what you think it means. Just know that you may know, understand, plainly. And that is the reassurance that John has for us. What can be known about Christ is plain for us to see here. And regardless of what specific heresies were growing and why people were drawn away from the church, the root problem remains the same, right? The evil one is always trying to draw people away from the truth. There will always be people in every age, in every, behind every heresy, who want to present some new or revolutionary insight about who Jesus is that is not plain in Scripture. This is not true. Any Jesus who is preached, who is not the Jesus of Scripture, is a lie, an idol, and a false god to lead people astray. Let's turn back to chapter 2, just a page or two back for most of you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. I think Pastor Tim preached this text starting in verse 20 of chapter 2. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the anti-Christ. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So we see this assurance outlined as the purpose of the book here at the close. And there's a specific as aspect of this assurance that I want us to focus in on or think about maybe. Uh, sometimes we hear assurance and we think of passages such as 2 Corinthians 13.5, which say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And this is not a wrong understanding of assurance, okay? But the Christians in John's original audience were struggling with a different type of assurance as well. And that was their assurance that they were struggling with was that this faith that they were in was actually the truth. 
Think about the context here. With so many defectors, with so many heresies, with so many false churches springing up, they had to wonder, are they mistaken? The question sometimes is not, am I in the faith? But is the faith that I am in actually the true faith? And that is an important question that is being addressed here. John gently and confidently reassures the believers, little children, as he so often addresses them, you who believe in the Jesus that we have preached, you are in the faith. Now, I said that this is the purpose of the book, and remember another purpose from the beginning of the book, that our joy may be complete, joy and assurance being held together. Um, in order for us to understand this, how these work together, I want us to go back to another book that John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book of John. So turn, this is going to be helpful to turn to, turn to John chapter 15. We're going to be seeing here uh, a scene where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is the last time he's speaking to them, the last supper, the last time he's speaking to them before the crucifixion, rather. And part of what I love about this passage is that looking at this passage and then coming over to 1 John, we see that John really models what it means to be a disciple. If you were coming through the discipleship class that the men were doing, part of what we talked about as far as discipleship was just learning how to live, learning how someone else lives. And you begin to live the way they live. You begin to speak the way they speak. And we see John doing that in 1 John. And part of how we see that is by going over to the Gospel of John and seeing how the words of Jesus became the words of John to the congregation. So in John chapter 15, let's look at verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. All right, this is so much of what we've heard repeated as a chorus over and over in 1 John. Abide in my love, keep my commandments, and that your joy may be full. So let's go back to 1 John. Back over to 1 John. I want us to read the whole purpose that was laid out at the very beginning in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to, so that our joy may be complete. You see how John is reassuring his readers? He's saying Jesus was from the beginning. He is God. He is the Word. He is Logos, the exact imprint of his nature. He's eternal life, and he has revealed himself to us. I saw him physically. I saw him with my eyes. I touched him with my hands, and now I am sharing what he has shared with me so that we can rejoice in confidence together. Jesus really is God. Jesus really has come. Little children, know for sure that you have eternal life. Moving to some application here. Stand firm in the faith. That is our point, and that is also the first point of application. We're living in a world that is constantly testing our faith. 
The world is not here to build up your faith. The world is here to test your faith or to come against it. There are much of, uh, much of us, uh, many of us, like in the first century, are asking the same questions of the 21st century. How can we know that this is true? How do we know that what we believe is the truth? Are we sure we've gotten it right? And the world is going to accuse you of arrogance and exclusivity, but stand firm in the faith. We don't claim truth out of arrogance, but out of humility, knowing that if God had not opened our eyes, we wouldn't see. And we are not making the path to life narrower. Rather, we see a world on a wide road to destruction, and we're pointing to the only path that leads to salvation. Another application, perhaps you hear this and you think, well, I can't stand firm in the faith because I don't think that I am in the faith. To you, I say, today is the day of salvation. Continue to listen as we recount what the Lord has done for us. And if your heart is stirred within you, repent of your sins. Surrender in faith to Jesus, the one who has come. And the last application is for us who are in Christ and to those who are not yet in Christ but are leaning in. Rest in the eyewitness accounts that were recorded for our benefit. John here relies so much on his earlier gospel writing and even reassures the, the church, I've seen him. He is the truth. Flowing out of this assurance of our place in the truth, John moves directly to a practical outworking of this assurance. And that is our second point, which is confident prayer. So first, stand firm in the faith. And second, pray with confidence. Look at verse 14 with me. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Elsewhere in scripture, this word for confidence is translated as boldness. Uh, think of the passage in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and the same disciple, John, are preaching with boldness, and the religious authorities arrest them, and they're like impressed with their boldness. They know that they've been with Jesus. This is the same word, boldness and confidence. And I think we have a little bit of a problem with this word sometimes because I think confidence can come across as arrogance a lot of times to us. So uh, I think this might be a helpful way for us to think about this. Um, consider for a second if one of you just decided right now in the middle of the sermon to walk up onto the platform and ask me a question. Please don't do that. Um, <laughs> no one will feel comfortable. I will not. You will not. The security team will not. Um, <laughs> uh, but you decided to come up here because you felt like you had the right to. That could be described as bold, confident even. But it would also be disrespectful and inconsiderate and just rude and arrogant. However, if one of my children were in here and decided to walk up on the platform while I was delivering the sermon, their confidence and their boldness wouldn't be interpreted the same way at all. Why is that? Because their confidence wouldn't stem from any sense of pride. Rather, their confidence would come from the nature of their relationship with me and their absolute assurance of their position in my eyes. And this is the kind of confidence with which we approach the Father in prayer. Think of Romans 8, right? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let's take this back to our text, right? And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
As children of God, we have complete confidence that he hears us when we pray. We don't burst into his presence with arrogance, demanding he hear us because we are so worthy, nor do we cower in silence outside the door, overwhelmed by our unworthiness. Instead, we approach his throne of grace with the confidence of a child who has a good father, a father who bends his ears to listen to his child. I was thinking of that uh, during the song that we were just singing, Tim. Um, he bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. It's, that's true. That's true. That's such a good truth. Now, I know some of you have looked at this text and you're waiting for me to clarify that the sovereign creator of the universe is not our genie to grant wishes. And you're saying, you need to make sure you point out that it's not just anything. So, here we go. All right. Pray according to his will. All right, let's look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears that, well, let's go back to 14 and then go into 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What is his will? How do we pray according to the Lord's will? What is his desire? What are his purposes? I think some of us can think rightly of passages like 1 Thessalonians, uh, which say this is the will of God, your sanctification. Or we can think of Christ being glorified. Yes, that is definitely within the will of God. There are many things, many paths we could go down. For purposes of this text, let's focus on the specific example that is given here, and that is prayer according to his will for fellow believers caught in sin. All right, verses 16 through 18. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There's a lot to unpack here. All right. You may see these verses and think, are there different levels of sins? Is there a special sin that leads to death that I need to make sure I am avoiding? How is there sin that does not lead to death? Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So where, how do, what do I do with all of this? Uh, so in order to lead us to understanding, I want to walk through how to approach this text, how I approached it. And that's part of the purpose of what we're doing here, right? When we are expositing the word, we are walking through verse by verse, trying to give the meaning, as they did in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, trying to give the meaning. And part of what we're doing also is modeling how you should be doing this on your own. So take from this perhaps some ways that you can approach texts yourself that are difficult in your personal time with the Lord. One way to start is looking at the facts that are presented, all right? There is sin that does not lead to death. There is an encouragement to pray. There's promised action. There is sin that leads to death. There is a difference in how a person caught in that sin should be treated. All wrongdoing is sin. Those born of God do not keep sinning. We are protected from the evil one. There's a lot here. And the next thing we can do is start asking ourselves questions. So like, who is being addressed? I'm, I'm used to teaching our adult one class and it's much more participatory, so. A lot of these rhetorical questions, I'm like, what? oh, okay, I'm waiting for you to say something. Who is being addressed? The church is being addressed in this book of 1 John. And who are they supposed to be praying for? For brothers committing sin, not leading to death. 
And it says that the Lord will answer. God will give him life. So apparently they're asking for God to give him life. Now I want to pause here and give us a framework for understanding. All right. I believe that the way we can understand this text is to see this as instruction on how to pray for believers who are caught in sin versus how to pray for those whose sins may in fact betray the fact that they were never believers in the first place. So brothers and sisters who are in the faith, see the encouragement that there is in this text. As believers, our sin no longer leads to death. My sin, your sin, does not anymore lead to death. Jesus, as the God-man in his perfection, paid the entire deadly wage of our sin that's so accurately described in Romans 6. Yet, we still sin. We're even reminded in chapter 1, verse 9 of the same book to ask for forgiveness of sins. But our wrongdoing does not lead to death. Isn't that, isn't that a cause for rejoicing? Amen. Okay. Conversely, there is sin that does lead to death. I would encourage you here not to think of this as one landmine of sin that you could accidentally stumble into or even a specific list of sins that you need to set out to avoid. But let's look instead at the rest of this letter for greater context and illumination. Right? Consider the life that John consistently points to as inconsistent with being a child of God. Someone who claims to be a believer but loves the world. Someone who claims to be a believer but walks in darkness. Someone who claims to be a believer but doesn't love the family of God. Look at verse 18 again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Church, let's also remember that what was written in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As new creation believers, our lives should look different than they did before we were created anew. As a Christian, your life needs to look different than it did before you were a Christian. Let's go over to chapter 3 of 1 John, maybe a page back. And we're going to read a passage here that explains this so well. What does it mean that we're not continuing in sin as believers? Chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. We're going to highlight this truth and really hammer the point home. Starting in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Coming back to today's text, I believe that we, we are being taught here that those committing sins leading to death are those who claim Christ who claim to be a part of his bride, the church, and yet continue in sin, continue to practice unrighteousness. For them, the warning is the same warning that used to be for all of us, which is that your sin leads to death. For those of us in Christ, however, the encouragement is that our sins have been paid for. 
Our Lord is protecting us as we read in verse 18. And our Lord and his bride are praying for us. Have you considered that? Even as the Spirit here commands us to pray for each other, he has and continues to pray for us. Scripture says that Jesus prayed for Peter when he was tempted. We read in the Gospel of John again that Jesus prayed for his disciples and in his high, high priestly prayer also prayed for all those who would become believers because of disciples' ministry. That's us. Jesus has prayed for us. And in Romans, we are reminded that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Once again, we see here, John is calling us to live as Jesus lived and to pray as Jesus himself prayed. So to bring this point to a close, understand that the command to pray for our brothers in verses 16 and 17 is an immediate application of the confident prayer that was commanded in verses 14 and 15. So let's pray for believers, for each other, Let's see this prayer as an extension of the love for the body that has been commanded over and over and over again through this letter. Love the family of God. Demonstrate your love for the family of God by praying. This should be really great news for us as believers because we still sin. I still sin. You still sin. I am here because other believers have been praying for me. You are here because other believers have been praying for you. We should have great encouragement and confidence that the Lord is commanding us, yes, pray for other believers, but in that same thing, he's commanding each of us, pray for each other. Know that you will be prayed for. And do that. I have to say, as an aside here, it is hard to pray for each other if you do not know each other. If you're here for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning, it is hard to know who is going to be praying for the sins that are in your life. Likewise, it's hard to know who else you can be praying for if you don't know anyone. If your greatest time of fellowship is maybe 25 seconds of shaking hands between songs, you're not going to be praying for each other's sin. Please pray for each other. Get to know each other. Some more ways we can apply here. This application is already built into this passage, but there's a couple of more things that we can think about. Um, Praying with confidence for the will of the Lord to be accomplished requires us to know what his will is. Study scripture. You will know what God is like. You will get to know him. And you will know what things align with his will and what things are clearly not in line with the God of Scripture. I had to thank a lot of you for praying today. Some of you have said, I've been praying for you. I was like, that's great. That's exactly what we're preaching about today, (laughs) what we're learning about, praying with confidence. The people of God getting a greater vision of God through the faithful exposition of the Word of God is the will of God. We can pray for confidence. And I'm confident that the Lord will answer that prayer and is answering that prayer even now. Let's pray for other believers caught in sin. We already talked about that. Praying that the Lord would deliver them from sin and give them life. This is promised. But let's also pray for those whose lives show that they are unbelievers. I want to be clear here. I do not see this passage as prohibiting us from praying for unbelievers. Rather, we need to remember that we do not pray for unbelievers in the same way that we pray for believers. I talked about this with Pastor Tim earlier this week, and one of the things he pointed out was we so often pray for people's behavior to be changed. And that is not how we should be praying for unbelievers. We should be praying that they would come to know the Lord. We cannot pray for someone's works to be good if they are dead in their sin. We need to pray that the Lord would bring them to life. Finally, maybe you were convicted by this picture of approaching the throne of God with humble confidence in prayer because you realize you do not know him that way. You do not know him as a father. Again, I say, today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin and worship the Lord. And that leads us to our final point. 
Point one, stand firm in the faith. Point two, pray with confidence. And our final point, worship the one true God. This verses 19 through 21. Start in verse 19 with me. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. From God. We know that we are from God. Don't get too confused or uh, uh, turned around here by this word from. It mainly, our, our, our understanding of it mainly has to do with understanding it as a place or time where people or things previously existed. You know, I am from Orlando. Uh, this building is from the 1920s. But this last idea is a little bit closer to what we're getting at, uh, which is the idea of belonging. A better way to understand this phrase is know that we are of God. That gives us a clearer picture of the author's intent. And in fact, this same word is often translated as of in other places in scripture. And some of your Bibles may read of instead of from. Let's think together though about what this means in light of how this passage ends. Right at the end, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why? Why is this reminder here? One of the reasons, one of these reasons, is that we need this reminder because while we are from God, while we are of God, the whole world does lie in the power of the evil one. And there are an abundance of people and purposes that we could be worshiping in this world, right? But we are of God in the midst of a world that's under the sway of the evil one. We are servants of the Most High King in a world that rejects his authority. We walk in the light in the middle of a world that stumbles in darkness. And, and what? Look at verse 20. See the assurance that the Holy Spirit is giving the church. Remember, we are of God in the midst of a world violently opposed to him. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now listen to this specific encouragement to a church facing opposition, facing heresies, facing doubts about whether or not what they believe is actually true. We are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Here the whole message of the book comes to a climax. Jesus has come. God himself really has come to a world under the sway of the evil one. He really did live a perfect life. He really did die a death that took the punishment for our sins. He really did walk out of a tomb three days later. He has delivered us from the power of the evil one and from sin. He has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Church, we can stand firm on this truth, intercede for our brothers boldly and press into knowing this God who has so graciously revealed himself to us. In light of this glorious truth about such a glorious God, why would we worship anything else? Yet, even in the midst of this truth, there's this reminder from John. The elder of the church, knowing the turmoil that they're in, the doubts they're facing, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You can hardly imagine a phrase that so sincerely addresses people as little children being spoken in harshness. So I like to imagine this as a phrase gently spoken. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The Lord knows we're prone to wander. He's not surprised or undone by our doubts. 
I love the way David writes about him in Psalm 103. He says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Instead of a cautionary rebuke to the church, we have a compassionate reminder. This whole book has been a reminder that, of what we know that we have in Christ. Remember that purpose laid out in the beginning, that our joy may be full, and the purpose laid out at the end, that you may know that you have eternal life. Your joy is full when you know that you have eternal life. I can't help but think here of something that I heard Pastor Calvin say so many times, right? Your theology should lead to doxology. Theology, the study of God, and doxology literally meaning praise or glory. Essentially, what you learn about God should lead you to praise him. Look back at verse 20 again and consider that in the context of how this book ends. We are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. First century church, this truth must keep you from worshiping anything or anyone else. 21st century church at Bull Street, this truth must keep you from worshiping anything or anyone else. Is what you are learning about God leading you to praise him? Has the assurance that we are in the faith and the knowledge that he has revealed to us pushed out any desire you may have to worship other gods? It's a question to ask yourself as application. And as we move into our final applications here, what do we do with this? What do we do with these passages? Well, first, we lean into our identity as those who are from God, of God. Remember, we are in the world, but not of the world. We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, city on a hill. But this is not only a call to stand out from the world, but also a reassurance of who we belong to in the midst of a dark world. Let's also seek to understand, right? This passage says that he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. The very God of the universe has revealed himself through creation, through his word, most completely through Jesus Christ when he came as a man 2,000 years ago. He has come to give us understanding. But how many of us don't even take the time to understand? How many of us have Bibles collecting dust on our shelves? Men's Bibles, women's Bibles, devotional Bibles, adventure Bibles, Bibles with like a fancy torn paper edge, journaling Bibles, all collecting dust. How many of us have to re-download a Bible app that's been purged from our phone because it hasn't been used? John marvels that God has come and been seen and heard and touched, and we can't be bothered to spend time with him? Understand him. Encounter him by spending time with him in scripture, in prayer, and in fellowship with his body, the church. Another way we can apply this here, keep from idols. As we already studied, this world is under the power of the evil one. And there are myriad ways to keep yourself from worshiping the only one who is worthy of worship. You don't have to look far for idols popping up all over the place. And we're, we're creating them, right? Our heart is idol factories. That's been said many times. But has any other God delivered you from sin? Has money ever purchased you eternal life? Has that person you worship on your screen ever come to your home so you could get to know them? They don't know you watch their show. They don't know you root for their team. They don't care you voted for them. They don't even know you exist. Why would they give their life for you? Will a spouse be your savior? Will a family give you life? Will that next career move bring you eternal security? 
insert any other idol. None of these things will bring you life. Church, keep yourself from idols. And finally, the application here in worshiping the Lord is worship. We have worship this morning. We're going to worship again momentarily. We worship because of what he has done. Our theology leads us to doxology. If you are a believer, you can worship the Lord with us now. If you have realized today that you are not a believer, turn and worship the Lord for the first time today. We would love to talk with you about what that means, about what all of this means. And church, finally, be assured, stand firm in the faith, pray with confidence, and worship the one true God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are faithful to your promises. Your word is true. Your promises, even that we read this morning, to answer prayer that is according to your will. We have prayed and you have answered. You have taught us today from your word, and we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of these truths as we leave this place that we wouldn't just walk out the doors and leave everything that you have taught us right here, but that we carry it with us, that we would mull it over, that we would talk about it as we sit down, as we rise, as we walk on the way. I pray that we would talk about it with our families and with our coworkers. I pray that you'd be working in someone's life even now, that they would see the glorious truth of the gospel, see what you have done for us, and believe. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be making new life in people even today. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.